Hey, Brian. Hey, Vic. You're listening to Game Federer, a podcast where Brian and I relive and revisit every Roger Federer Grand Slam title. Today, we are at the precipice, to quote a show favorite of ours, the penultimate episode um, of this look back series of ours at Roger's incredible and memorable tennis career to date. We were talking off mic, and obviously, if there is a 21 and 22 Grand Slam, we will be reprising our roles as his retrospective look-backers. Today, we're going to get into Wimbledon 2017, where Roger earned his 19th Grand Slam, broke more records, Brian, among them the oldest man to win Wimbledon, as well as his 11th appearance in the finals of this Super Bowl of the sport. Um, And I also want to get into a little Sam Query with you as he was a factor in this Wimbledon as well. But first, any U.S. Open updates or things to look forward to on the men or women's side, stuff that I know you're preparing for this, anything on your mind, top of mind, related to the U.S. Open? Excitement, which is a, is that a, am I allowed to say excitement in 2020? Are we allowed to use that word? Um, it feels not normal, certainly, but hey, it's late summer and the world's, many of the world's best tennis players are in New York. And as we sit here right now, it's the almost third, I guess, second, third week in August. They're here a little bit earlier because of what they tweaked with the schedule, whereas the Cincinnati Masters, the Western and Southern Open, that's now being played at the Billie Jean King National Tennis Center, home of the U.S. Open, makes a lot of sense. Just keep everybody in one place, cut down on travel. Uh, On the men's side, we know it's going to be pretty well represented in terms of top players. No Nadal, of course, and of course, no Roger Federer, but that's because of injury. But Novak Djokovic, Daniil Medvedev, a whole bunch of top guys are going to be there. The women's side, interestingly enough, I don't know if there's anything to read into this or it's just a strange coincidence, fewer top women are making the trip over, many of them over from uh, from Europe or elsewhere in the world. But of course, Serena Williams will be here. Uh, and that's, as far as the American tennis audience, that's really the where it starts and ends the conversation. It's what's Serena going to do because this is her big opportunity. So now it's just the point where, okay, they're here. They're playing the Cincinnati qualifiers as you and I sit here and record this. And it's like, okay, let's go. This is going to happen. Fingers crossed. It seems like everybody's dotted the I's and crossed the T's. There was an interview earlier today in the New York Times. Uh, Christopher Clary uh, spoke by Zoom with Novak Djokovic, and Djokovic talked about life in this world. He is not, um, his quarantine time went a little bit differently, maybe not as smoothly as some other people's with the Adria tour and some of the comments he made, but Djokovic is now he talked, he rented a house and that was a big concession that he got players at their own expense could rent a house as opposed to staying in this hotel out on long Island. Uh, if you're a hockey fan, it's right across from the Nassau Coliseum. That's like the tournament hotel right now where everybody's kind of bubbled. It's not a true bubble, but that's where they all are. Djokovic though, he gets a house, but with a house, you've got to pay for your own security just to make sure it's safe. But Djokovic is there. He's ready to go. Uh, he talked about his fight with uh, COVID-19. He said he never really had like the true, like a fever, but he definitely fatigued. And I think he lost one of the the smell or taste senses. I forget which one, um, but he's here. He's ready to go. And I would say he is the odds on favorite to make it 
18 grand slams for him. Is it a Hamptons house, Brian? Uh, they were obviously coy about that, but I would doubt Hamptons. Usually in normal times, and I wouldn't be surprised if some players are doing this right now who aren't playing Cincinnati, players will go out to the Hamptons like earlier. Um, like in a normal year, you'll play Canada, Cincinnati, the Masters level. If you're not going to play the 250, that's the week before the U.S. Open. So after Cincinnati, you've got a week or whatever it is, usually longer before the U.S. Open starts. So a lot of them will go out east, uh, eastern Long Island to the Hamptons. They know somebody who knows somebody who's got a house. They go out there, relax, train. Then as it gets closer, they go onto the National Tennis Center, get hits in on the courts, practice on the courts, and get used to the tournament rhythms. But yeah, for for the actual tournament, I think the Hamptons would be a little bit of a long haul for the Djokovic camp. It's got to be nice, though, right, to be able to just kind of pick up the phone and whoever your point person is in in the in the great city of Manhattan, just kind of being like, "Yeah, Novak's coming to town, and uh, we need a house." Yeah, that that's um, you and I talk a lot of NBA. That's where the uh, Kevin Durant made his decision to join the Warriors, and uh, there was the I think he's one of the better sports columnists out there these days, Tim Kawakami from the San Francisco area, the group of warriors. I, I forget. I, I'm assuming it was like the Draymond, five. the Hamptons five. Uh, that was the unit that the warriors would kind of close games with when they were at their peak. The hand, I, it was, it was Steph, uh, I guess, Draymond, Clay Thompson. And was it Iguodala? Steve Kerr and Iguodala. I feel like it, Steve Kerr was one of the five. No, right. But he's not on the court. So he's not like the Hamptons. Like, but anyway, that's a great name. Now that we're talking about basketball, I have to mention it kind of goes hand in hand with, with sports in general. Their execution of this playoff in the bubble has been phenomenal. It has been exceptionally watchable. It is a little different, obviously, but they've pulled it off. I mean, yeah. there's, there's drama. I'm excited to see at, as the ATP WTA tours and the majors restart, what lessons they're going to take in the broadcast since there won't be fans at these events to start from, from the NBA bubble and how good they've made these games look on television. There was an interview in the New York Post with some of the ESPN people who are in charge of the broadcast for the U.S. Open. One of the innovations, we've talked a lot about the player box, like the entourage, the player has courtside with Roger Federer. You know, you've got Mirko, of course, then Anna Wintour and his parents and whoever else is going to be there at that time. So apparently what ESPN did is they had each player submit, I'm sure they're not doing this for every match, but just the main matches on Ash, submit like 15 people who are going to be in like their virtual box, like I guess on Zoom. So the player will be able to look over and there's screens. And you can see these screens set up if you look at some of the social media from the players that are already on site at the US Open. And they'll just project this onto the screen. So it'll be like they're there sort of, right? And that's normal in 2020. That was actually my next question. So, like, even their box, like, even Mirka and his and her and Roger's dad, nobody's going to be in the stadium, is what you're saying. Not even the entourage. Well, the entourage, I think the entourage can go in the stadium. I'm actually not sure about that, but the entourage is significantly cut down. And that was a big point of contention when they were talking about what this tournament and what these tournaments are going to look like. And I think it was originally only going to be one for the U.S. Open, and that was a big uh, – Djokovic was one person who really railed against that, and he got it extended to three. And in this article I talked about, the Christopher Clary article, Goran Ivanisevic, his coach, is at his house. Uh, he's staying with him in this house that he's renting. But I don't know, the as far as the rules go, if, if he can be in the stadium like a coach normally would. I'm not sure about that part. I think the virtual, the screen thing that the NBA did is really cool. It's really novel. It's very inclusive. It's very experiential. Um, and it's fun. 
Uh, it's not gimmicky. Could have been really gimmicky. It has not been gimmicky. And I think it'll be good if tennis like can use that model a little bit. But I got to say, I feel like I feel like tennis with no fans is is okay for the players, right? Especially the players that are not favorites or especially the players that are, it levels the playing field even more than it does in basketball. I would say it does, but I would also say that a lot of these players are used to playing events that are maybe not the most well-attended. Like, yeah, okay, the U.S. Open every year packs in hundreds of thousands of fans, but if you are playing, if you're a lower-ranked player and you're on an outer court fourth match of the day at like a, a 250 event, not going to be a ton like it's not a roar of a crowd that you're that you're used to hearing so in some ways it'll be similar ish to what they're used to i love the lebron line from like way early when this started he's like i haven't played in an empty gym since seventh grade yeah yeah he's <laughs> can you believe that like it's he was the like being the chosen one like he had to actually think about what it was like to play in a gym where nobody was watching him play wild so last thing about the U.S. Open that I was wondering, I'm sure a lot of people are going to be wondering this. There's going to be no fans. Uh, there's going to be no, like, turnstile. There's going to be no merch sales. There are merch sales, actually. I was... My question is, how are they going to offset the money part? Like, how how is this getting paid for? Um, combination of the broadcast rights. Like, ESPN is still paying them a, a lot of money to broadcast the event and then the partners around the world. And there's still, you know, sponsorship. So if you watch on TV you'll probably see even more sponsorship than in years past. Than you know? normal. Yeah, like the the signage around the courts. Maybe they'll do some creative things with the, you know, the tarps if they covered like empty seats, if they slap some logos on those. So yeah, are they taking Oh, that'd it? be smart. Yeah, um, you're seeing that with some with some baseball teams doing that now. Like, I, and again, like full disclosure, like I'm, I'm working at the US Open, but is there a hit? I'm sure, yes, there's a financial hit, but they're- bringing in some money. So that's certainly better than nothing. And the prize money is not going to take a hit, right? It's still it takes a, the it's level. a slight hit, but it's not like, yeah, I think they, the USDA says it's going to be uh, just about 95% of what it was from last year. The whole prize pot for all the events is uh, just over $53 million, which is crazy. I mean, that obviously gets broken down throughout the draw. So everybody's taking home something, but the money is pretty, the prize money for the players is pretty close to what it was last year. Path to Wimbledon 2017. There are three key tournaments here, right? Roger wins. He's on a winning streak in his 35th, 36th year of life. Wins the Indian Wells tournament, beats Stan the Man. Played Nadal in the round of 16 there. That seemed or felt like a rare seating. Yeah, that's Nadal coming back from injury. And so these guys are sort of now floating in the rankings a little bit more than they did when they were at their prime or they're only meeting in semifinals. So when that happens- Sharks in the shallow waters. Yeah. When that happens, you get floaters. Um, people unseated or seated differently than where their ability would normally put them. And you get crazy things like that. Wins the Miami Masters, beating Nadal in the final. Um, and he got through a formidable path in that tournament. Uh, Tiafo, Del Potro, Agut. Burdick and Kyrgios. Um, and then he wins again at Hala, this time beating Alexander Zverev, actually beats the Zverev brothers in this particular tournament. Brian, what do you attribute to this youthful resurgence that carried over to Wimbledon 2017? 
I think whatever he did in those six months after Wimbledon 2016, where he got hurt and shut it down for the rest of the year, I think that time off to let the body recover and then to train in whatever way he did that allowed him to be so fresh for the first half of 2017, because we talked the last episode about the Australian Open, but what he did in that sunshine double, winning Indian Wells, then winning Miami. He was the oldest player ever to win a Masters title when he did it at Indian Wells. Indian Wells, he got a very favorable draw. But then, as you said, Miami, he got no favors from the draw. To go through that opposite ends of the country, back-to-back weeks on hard courts, that is remarkable. And I think it, it goes a long way towards why this is one of the best Federer years ever. Okay, did he win as many matches as he did in 2006, 2007? No, but he still won 53 matches and two majors, a couple of Masters titles. I mean, this is still an all-time year, elevated even further when you look at his age. Tom Brady's got his TV 12, and he he shared his secrets of his youthful resurgence. Are we ever going to know exactly what Roger did, or is it by design that it is sort of because of the nature of the sport also, maybe, is it by design that it's somewhat opaque? Um, it's opaque to a point, but he's, it, it, from what you read about it, it's just like good, hard, good, like old-fashioned hard work. Um, he goes, he's got a place in Dubai, and every off-season, you know, tennis off-season, especially for Federer, is about three weeks. In older times, when he was younger, he would just go to Dubai and just post up there, and they would just go through like a whole fitness block. A little bit different, of course, at this age. So I don't know what he did in 2016, but it just seems like a lot of fitness, conditioning, physical training things that worked really well. Now, maybe they worked better in 20, in 2017 on the early side because maybe they tweaked things. He got a little bit older to keep him healthy and keep him fresher. But again, whatever they did, it worked. For sure. I would have loved to see his workout regimen on Instagram like some of the other players that we get to see their, you know, their routines and whatnot. Um, just to get a glimpse, you know, he's maybe old school in that way. Like he's not. Playing. Yeah. Well, no. So well, you mentioned old school and I'm obviously going to go to Rocky, right? Like yeah. I can just see him like training like Rocky four in, in Russia, you know, yeah. to, there's this, there's a video of him early COVID where he's like hitting balls against the garage door or something. Like I wanted more of that, you know? Oh like, yeah. I, I remember that. Um, and that was right when everything was really shut down. So it was yeah. so such like a tease. Although I, I agree with your Rocky Four comparison, but I will disagree in that, you know, a remote cabin in Siberia is a tick different than Dubai. I'm sure Roger is not carrying rocks around uh, the beaches of Dubai. Well, when you got to play in the doll, right? When you got to go against Drago, you got to do what you got to do, man. I would think his training in Dubai looks more like Drago's training. Like, I'm not saying <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, the, no. there's any uh, illegal injections or anything, but like, I'm sure it's a very high-tech uh, setup. Very, uh, everything is tracked down to the yes. finest granular metric. I hope he punches the, the PSI thing. What a, like, what a, that movie was so ahead of its time, by the way. I mean. Us talking about this is putting the song in my head. Like, I'm hearing the song right now as we talk about this. And I think it is fair to say that there are, uh, at least if you, were to, if you were to poll everybody on the ATP tour, I would say at least 25 to 30% of them would have Eye of the Tiger or some music from the Rocky series in their workout playlist. I feel like even if it's the Puff Daddy, a Notorious B.I.G. sampled song, like something of it is in there because it, it's one of the few things that can inspire you and get you to elite level. See, for me though, I, the tiger is just so cheesy that like it, it doesn't work. 
not that I'm training to be a professional athlete, but like, I, I just can't like really listen to that song and like keep a straight face. I can't help but think though, Brian, if you were on a bench press right now and you had a spotter who was kind of just like, you know, checking out and you heard that song, it would push you through. It, it really wouldn't. I'm telling you like hearts on fire would, uh, the one from Rock, but I, the tiger, it, it, it really wouldn't. I promise. Fair enough. No easy way out. The, the one where he's driving in his, in his, yeah, that, that would probably flashback. work with this little robot. No shortcut home. Yeah. Speaking of uh, ridiculous 80s music as we lose more people. So we're doing this, the uh, Democratic conventions going on. And there's a great video that's going around the internet. The 2004 John Kerry nomination. Um, when, you know, they do the big balloon drop. The CNN yeah. producer, I guess the balloons weren't coming quickly enough for, or the event producer weren't, the balloons weren't coming quickly enough for his liking. So he is, you, he goes out on CNN and somehow CNN picked this up and he's saying like, what the fuck are you guys doing up there? Like in this all went out of CNN. I tell this story because the music that was playing as this big cinematic moment happens is um, dreams by Van Halen. And I said, I was like, well, what, that's maybe another reason why John Kerry lost because they went with dreams by Van Halen for this <laughs> big crowning moment. Song selection matters, man. Yes. I think Obama, Obama city of blinding lights like that. They nailed that in 2008 when he was, uh, not to get political, but like uh, I listening to the speech yesterday, no matter what your politics are, when you hear, when you think, just when you think you've heard a great speech, he comes in and obliterates it. You know, like it, it was a, it was a, I think one of his best speeches ever. Yeah, certainly uh, one of the more different speeches he's ever delivered. Uh, the tone, everything about it was different. But yeah, I mean, he is, I, I don't think there's anybody who would, regardless of your political leanings, who would argue with the fact that he, like, he's just a brilliant speaker, a brilliant communicator. And so is his wife, as we also saw this week. Genius orator. And part of the reason we're going all over the place, Brian, uh, to segue back to Wimbledon is, uh, simply put, he breezed through this Wimbledon. So we don't have a whole lot to right. talk about other than the, the context here. So what's really funny about this is we talk about uh, 2017 as this vintage Federer year, and it was because of the results, but this is a vintage pre-Nadal trip through a tournament for Federer where, I mean, he just absolutely rolled through this to the point where, as you said, we don't have, like, the biggest anomaly of 2017, and I promise we'll get right back into this in a second, after Dubai, he lost to, uh, or after he won in Australia, he lost to Evgeny Donskoy in, in Dubai. And that was a little bit strange that he answered that by going out and winning Indian Wells, Miami. Tommy Haas was going to retire. This Wimbledon's his last appearance. He's one of Federer's good buddies. He gets a wild card Haas into Stuttgart as the world number 300 and goes out and beats Roger in three sets. I mean, that was, but like Federer is so like nonplussed by it that it's like, that's one match where you're like, was he like, not tanking, but like, did he let this happen? Like, how did this happen? Um, and then Federer responds there by winning Hala and then rolling into Wimbledon. And we know what he did there. I think the fact that you mentioned that they were, they're tight. I think that's, I think he, I think he just wanted to let one, you know, let uh, one, he's, it's a send off kind of a thing, you know? Yeah, but you don't, it's like the free throws, the honorary free throws or whatever, you know, like uh, when the coach blows the whistle and they let the player walk off the court and everybody gives right. them a standing ovation. It's kind of, that's Roger's version of that in a non-significant tournament, perhaps. But he's not doing that. I mean, he's a pro. He's one of the greatest of all time. Like, I, yeah. like he said he's happy. He played like, to win the game. Yeah, I think he did. It's just so strange. And Federer afterwards said, like, he wasn't surprised. Like, he 
knew he could lose. Um, that's usually things you hear from Nadal. Like if you listen to Nadal before any match, like the guy he's about to play is always Nadal talks him up like it's a combination of like Federer and Bjorn Borg. It's um, a great tactic, by the way. Oh, it's it. brilliant. Um, it's respecting your opponent. Right. Um, but it was just crazy that Federer lost that match to a guy who hadn't played in several months and was literally in the final days of his career. And so I guess, though, that was dulled. Like the if there were warning signs from that loss, they were dulled by Federer rolling through Halle and looking just fine as he got to Wimbledon. Again, you're like the best segueer here. At Wimbledon, he didn't drop a set the whole road. How outlier is just that, contextually speaking? Um, it happens, but it's not like he's done it before. How much of it was him versus the field he was up against in this particular Wimbledon? I would say a bit of both, to give you a nice big cop-out answer. Okay, first round, uh, he plays... Uh, Dolgopolov? Who retires in the second set, so he doesn't have to complete the match. Uh, Livich, like you, like I, I would say the draw, like really, really helped him. Livich gets through him in three, a tie break there. Misha Zverev, who you're just beaten in Hala. Uh, Zverev's having a career year, but he's seeded here. But you know, your third round opponent, like it's going to be a seed if you're Federer here, but it's Misha Zverev and he can handle Misha Zverev anytime. Wins a tie break set, then uh, two more from there. Dimitrov, he prior to the US Open last year, I mean, he always has had a, a pretty reasonable time with, with Grigor Dimitrov. Was this the first time they faced off in a Grand Slam that Roger eventually won? I can't recall off the top of my head. Yeah. In our journey. Oh, in our yes. journey? Uh, let's, I can check this quickly. Let's find out. Modern technology over here. Yeah. Let's see. Uh, that's a good question. Uh, they had met uh, Australia 2016. And that was a Federer win. That's where Federer got on to, I guess, the semis. And he lost to Djokovic, right? Right before he hurt the knee the first time. So this is their second meeting at a major. I'm surprised they had not met earlier at a major. Again, part of the reason I asked that is because of this baby-fed nomenclature. Right, which is, I would say, been detrimental to Dimitrov because it's just, you know, comparing people to Fed. It was like when Michael Jordan was retiring and everybody's quick to point, you know, Grant Hill, Penny Hardaway. It's like the next Michael Jordan. And those guys were great players, but injuries and not being Michael Jordan, like almost like casts a shadow over them and diminishes in the minds of many their own greatness. Dimitra was a, a really nice player. He won the ATP finals a couple of years ago. Ton of potential. Like he looks great on court. And that's where the baby Federer came from. He's got the one hand backhand, the way he moves. He won the Wimbledon juniors. So, yeah, he's a super talented player. Every, he's a very popular player. Everybody likes him, but he's not Roger Federer. Is there a crime in that? Absolutely not. I mean, he's been inside. The, he's had, interesting with Dimitrov, too, is how he's had, like, more pronounced slumps than anybody else, um, uh, like, kind of his peers. But he's also a, another one of those guys who's in that that generation, that Raonic, Chilich, who we'll talk about in a bit here, Nishikori, that like in between group, the post Murray, Djokovic, Nadal, Federer, but pre like these next gen guys that just have not been able to to really deliver at the highest level consistently. Yeah, like Dimitrov got up to three in the world after he won the uh, the ATP Finals, which is later this year in 2017. Milos Raonic and Tomas Burdick were the next two opponents on this path to the final. Yeah, like he. His dominance ratio 
his time on court, his first serve percentages. I mean, he looked like, I think we've said 2006 is probably considered his best year. He kind of breezes through it, right? And and then the other thing that I'm, I kind of, actually, I'm, I might reverse the order a little bit. We haven't heard the name Nadal or Djokovic yet. So uh, I just want to leave that hanging in the balance for a moment. We just did Roger's path to the final. I want to do Chilich's first, and then I have some stuff about one of his opponents, and then we'll get to Nadal and Djokovic. So Chilich's path, Cole Schreiber, these are all players, by the way, that Roger has handled at one point or other pretty handily, right? Mm-hmm. Cole Schreiber, Mayer, Steve Johnson, Agut, Muller, and then in the semis, this was like an asterisk. This was like a big deal for Sam Querrey in the semifinals of Wimbledon. How close was he in this tournament? He was as close. I'll give you another cop-out answer. He was as close as he got. Like, he was a semifinalist at Wimbledon. Um, Chilich was in good form up until the final. So if you're query going into that match, you're thinking, I'm not going to pretend to be his thoughts, but if you're a query fan, if you're an American tennis fan, you're thinking, okay, this is his best surface, his best major tournament performance-wise. Like, these are the conditions that suits his game the best, so he has a chance to win this tournament. Like, he's playing really good tennis right now. Or, excuse me, win this match. I'm not going that far yet in terms of winning the tournament. And it's basically just, let's go out and, and compete and see what happens. It's not like when you see somebody make this Cinderella run deep into a tournament, and you're like, okay, luck's going to run out. Like, I, I remember going into that match thinking like, okay, Query has a chance to win and get on to the, the into the Wimbledon final. Um, did I feel like he was going to? No, but I didn't think he was completely overmatched either. And the scoreline reflects that. He battled as you said, by the way. Songa, five sets in the third round. Anderson, a player who he's played the most, more times than any other player, tight five-setter. And Anderson, I believe, beat him in another Grand Slam coming up, uh, a tight match as well. And I, that was the, I think that was the match that Anderson, or the tournament where Anderson went, got to the final, if it's I'm US not Open. mistaken. U.S. Open. 2017, yeah, just after this. Beat Murray who was ranked number one in this tournament, I believe. Or was that the U.S. Open? He's number one in the world, yeah. Number one in the world. Sam Querrey beats him in five, but then falls to Chilich in four sets in the semifinals. Hell of a run. He got to the quarters at Wimbledon again then the, uh, in 2019, so the last time we had a Wimbledon event. Like, his game, in terms of the serve and the power off the baseline, like, it's always a threat, but it's especially a threat at Wimbledon. Like, I just think that kind of style suits him well uh could he put together another run like this in 2020 when he'll be i think almost 33 years old by that point yes he could um kevin anderson's a good example somebody else who's doing it at that point but it's also like you shouldn't expect to see that again if that makes sense he's capable but you know the, getting to the wimbledon semifinals is really hard um I mean, even if he doesn't get back to that point, look at what... Okay, so he beats Murray, the world number one in 2017, gets to the Wimbledon uh, semis. year before, when he got to the quarters, he had beat uh, Djokovic, who was number one in the world at the time. So he has had some big results at Wimbledon. But in terms of the majors, yeah, 2017 was certainly his best because, like we just said, he followed it up at the U.S. Open with the quarterfinal trip. Certainly puts him in a category in the sense that there are a few players that have beaten multiple number one 
ranked players. I mean, that's, that's a huge uh, achievement unto itself, even if it doesn't quantify it into Grand Slam championships. Important point going through this list of names, Brian, is that we didn't hear Nadal or Djokovic. What happened to them this tournament? They lost, I know, but like it is not to this point, it has been extremely uncommon for tennis fans to not hear three out of those four names in every quarter going into the quarterfinals or to the semifinals, I should even say. So, what was unique about this tournament? What did you see? So, this was the first time you throw Murray into that group as well that the Nadal Djokovic Murray group did not get, I think, to the semifinals at least maybe the quarterfinals since the 09 French Open which uh which Roger won start with Nadal because he's like we said with Roger he's also on his way back from injury in 2016 um goes out gets to the Australian Open final loses to Federer gets to the final in uh or he, he plays Federer early on in was it Indian Wells or Miami Miami and then um no Indian Wells early and then Miami final um, so he loses to Federer twice, wins the French Open. Nadal's having a, a very good year. Wimbledon at this point is not his best tournament, his best major at least. Um, it hasn't been for a while just because of the conditions. So he loses a 15-13 fifth set to Gilles Muller. I mean, that's almost a coin flip. Like, should he be able to beat Gilles Muller? Sure, but good point. Like, it's a 15-13 fifth set. Like, that's one of those things we talked about, like we talked about with the the Federer erotic 09 final here. It's just at a certain point in the match, somebody's going to win, somebody's going to lose. It doesn't mean that the player who lost is a loser. Um, it's just somebody's got to win this match. So Nadal, it's like, okay, he's this is like understandable. Djokovic, though, we've talked about this before. This is that period where he is just really kind of in the wilderness. I mean, we talked 2017 Australia, he lost to Dennis Istman, doesn't even get to the quarterfinals there, um, knocked out. Uh, early in Mexico, early in Indian Wells, has a decent run on clay, but then he splits up with Marion Vida, who's like his long-term coach, uh, teams up with Andre Agassi right before the French Open where he loses, um, I think, to Dominic Team. Like, it's just, he's just kind of lost at this point, it, like in the wilderness a little bit. And then we've seen him eventually go back to, to Marion Vida and the, and the rest of or the core of that team that, that worked so well before. And it's working very well again. So this is just like a blue period for Djokovic. It stinks. He's certainly recovered from it nicely. But again, this is also one of those situations where we talk about the sustained Federer dominance being so impressive because this is proof of how hard it is to maintain that fire and the health and that kind of run at the top of the sport where Djokovic got to the top. He won the career grand slam. He won the French open finally. And then it's just sort of, okay, now what? And the body had some issues. So there's that period where he, I wouldn't say drifted, but it's just the results weren't at the Djokovic level. We expect he's gotten them back there and maybe even above, but this is very much in, in the heart of that period. So somebody has got to take advantage, right? And we're seeing guys all over taking advantage. Very important that you said that because uh, opportunities don't come around very often. And Roger, 2017 definitely saw it and seized it two out of four Grand Slams. I should say, uh, just for the record, the, the Djokovic, uh, he retired here. We we're talking about the, the struggles. This was in the uh, quarters. Against Burdick. Against Burdick. Yeah. This was the, the elbow arm issues. The final. Coming in, Chilich had played great against Roger in recent years had three match points uh, against him at Wimbledon the prior year. 
But this match was simply different, right? 3-1-4, an hour and 40 minutes. Um, Chilich was hurt the whole match. I mean, that's it's well-documented. Um, Roger knew it pretty much from, from the you know opening bell. Is there anything, Brian, more unfortunate for players and fans alike than a high-stakes game at less than full strength? No, and it's heartbreaking. It was heartbreaking to watch on TV as you see late in that third set, Marin Chilich is crying. And he said afterwards that, you know, those tears are not like tears of pain, but just the feeling that, like you just said, I'm here on the biggest stage in the sport. And like, it's like a nightmare. Like imagine it's that, that nightmare you have where you're standing up on, on the stage in like your high school auditorium and you're wearing your underwear. I mean, Chilich essentially has that where he's playing Roger Federer in the Wimbledon final and he can't move. I mean, if this is any other match anywhere else on tour, any other round, I'm sure he probably retires. Like, he can't play, but it's the Wimbledon final. He's not going to retire and call an early day. What had happened was in the match, I think he said it was the match against Query, so the uh, the semifinal. He just had a callus in his foot, and it got some fluid in it, and that turned into a, a whole big thing where he just, again, could not move, and there's nothing you can do about it. And it's heartbreaking, but it's also life, and it stinks for Aaron Chilich, but uh, Roger Federer is not giving back that eighth Wimbledon trophy anytime soon, nor should he. To quote the great Charles Barkley, Brian, the best ability is availability. And that's that's the bottom line. But I will say this on Chilich, gutsy and super classy, because you're right, under any other circumstances, he would have retired. There's a certain dignity with which he carried himself getting winner after winner levied against him and just kind of going back to the baseline and either, you know, returning a serve or giving a serve. I thought it was a beautiful moment for sport, albeit painful to watch. Yeah. Um, but these guys know what they're, what they're in for. Like it's a, it's a results business and you, you can't, you know, you, you, I like that Barkley quote too. And I say that a lot. And I think that that's a strength of Federer that he was always available. Uh, he's always able to post. I will say with Chilich though, this is almost more in like the, not the, oh, he he's hurt. Like that's his problem. Like this is like a, a freak injury, you know? A freak it's, thing, yeah, yeah, like, yeah. It's a freak thing that happened at the absolute worst possible time. The way he was playing would have been really interesting to see how this match would have gone. Yeah, because he had, like we just mentioned, he'd been playing sufficiently well against Roger coming in. I want to highlight because as much as, sorry to cut you off, as much as this is like a Federer clinic, you really saw it in the third set. So this is Wimbledon now. And when you think of Wimbledon, the John McEnroe days, it's a serve and volley. We talked in our very first episode, Wimbledon 2003, about the differences between a grass court and a hard court and a clay court and the style of play and how grass courts used to be the ultimate fastest. So you'd serve, you rush to the net, and you play one shot, the volley, and that would essentially be the point. But they slowed down the grass at Wimbledon so it looks more like tennis you'd see on any other surface. Last time they played an all-serve and volley final, like two guys doing that more often than not on every point, uh, was 0-1, the, one of the great Wimbledon finals ever. It was on the Monday with Goran Ivanisevic and Pat Rafter. Ivanisevic, of course, from Croatia, or Marin Cilic from third set. I've, I'm assuming Federer notices Cilic's limited mobility. So he decides to just go serve and volley. And he played a couple of those points, like at, at big moments, Cilic 
really no answer for anything at this point, but especially that kind of aggressive attacking intent. And then Federer is able to just run away with it. Context. Roger's eighth Wimbledon, you mentioned. We talked a little bit about his body preservation and schedule management. His year to this point, 31 and 2, 9 and 0 against top 10 players. Five titles. Five titles, 17 and 5 in tie breaks. Um, it's kind of a tongue-in-cheek question, but you know, this is this is all in good fun. You think the scopes were put on uh the nice round number of 20 right away, or did he sit on this one for a while? Oh, no, I think it was, I think it, yes, in the sense of like, I want to win the next one I'm playing. Which leads me to the next thing is going into the 2017 US Open, he was, this is kind of my stray item final thought for you. He goes into the US Open, the clear favorite. What happened there? I think we talked a lot about, first of all, he had to play a lot of harder matches early in the tournament. And we talked about the importance of, or the difficulty of winning the U.S. Open because of the conditions. This point in the year, you've got Federer, who since Wimbledon has now turned 36. He's won all these tournaments. He's had this great year. He goes and plays Canada, uh, gets to the final where he loses to Sasha Zverev. This is like the big Zverev coming out summer, so he doesn't play yeah, Cincinnati. Big time. Um, so he goes to the U.S. Open, but he's got – it's just more miles on the legs. You're on a hard court. It's hot. You're in North America. And then first set – or first round, rather, he goes five with a very young Francis Tiafo. And then in the second round, he goes five with Mikhail Eugenie. So that's a lot of time on court. You're using a lot of bullets early in the tournament, and it just depletes you going down the road. So I, I never thought going into that tournament that he was the odds-on favorite. But I remember thinking, like, okay, if he's going to win this again – he hasn't now in nine years since he lasted. This is the time, and it wasn't. Do you have any stray items or final thoughts, bud? Um, I just think it's funny. I get yes, this was an anticlimactic final, but how how we kind of yada yada Federer winning eight Wimbledons. Like that's just like you talk about all the shame on us. Very much shame so. on us. You talk about all the differences of. Okay, tennis before the Open era, it was very different, and it certainly was. But even though it was maybe easier to win Wimbledon back in 1930, nobody won it eight times. Uh, Sampras, of course, with seven, we talked about him tying that in the uh, 2012 final. But he also, uh, I think it was William Renshaw, had evened up with Sampras. Or that's who Sampras had equal. So now Federer stands alone. Open era among men. Open era, uh, amateur era, whatever it is, nobody has been better at Wimbledon than Roger Federer. I mean, that's just, it's remarkable. And it's almost a shame like Roger Federer is not shedding tears over this, but like if you get 20 at Wimbledon, like that would have been cinematic as we say. Um, <laughs> but this is 19 and I think he'll settle for 19 and eight Wimbledon titles. Does that record hold the eight Wimbledons? Yeah. Ah, uh, that's a good question. Djokovic has what five right now? Double check that. Off top Does of he head. already have five? I think wow. he's got 11, then like two back to backs. Um, and there wasn't Wimbledon this year. I would say this record has a better chance than than uh, the than 20, twenty for sure. I think twenty. We talked before. I mean, twenty could be over and or it could be equaled in two months. Um, Djokovic has how many Wimbledons? Yeah, Djokovic has five Wimbledons. Um, I don't think it's safe, but I don't think it's like critically endangered. Let's put it that way. 
Um, under siege, we'll call it. Under siege. I like that. Over and over with the movie references here. Yeah. Okay, so next week's going to be a little different in that we're going to talk about the final Grand Slam, the 20th Grand Slam, I should say. I should stop. There's no, there's no this is still a, a living, breathing document like the Constitution, if you will, right? Uh, it could evolve over time. We don't know. There could be 30 Grand Slams. We just don't know. But uh, for purposes of the podcast as it stands right now, uh, next week is our last episode. It is episode 20. It is the 20th Grand Slam. It's, a, it's kind of funny how this has taken a lot of our time and work and energy and love and passion. And it's been exhausting, but it's also been like a thrill at the same time. Imagine him. He, he won 20 of these Grand Slams. And just to, to go back and talk about how you're saying like, like eight, we're just throwing it out, like, like out with yesterday's trash of like, oh yeah, eight Wimbledons. It has been quite a journey. And to honor that, obviously each episode has hopefully been in some shape or form honoring of that. We're going to talk about the final, the 20th Grand Slam, which was what, by the way, it's the Australian Australia Open. 18. Yeah. Australia 18 against Andy. No, Milos Raonic. Thank you. Um, and after that, it'll be like a bifurcated episode. So we'll do that. And then we're going to do a best of, basically a best of the podcast and the best of Roger Federer's career. Uh, I'm going to throw some uh, topics or categories at Brian, and we'll just kind of go back and forth and rap about it. And then we will sign off. Does that sound like a good plan to you? Sounds great. I also uh, messed up. It's uh, it's Chilich again. I forgot about that. Raonic was, I was mixing my finalists from that generation of players. Raonic, or Chilich rather, is the 18 Australian Open finalist. We haven't obviously done our homework for that episode yet, but we will. And thank you as always for listening. And Brian, thank you as always for being my partner in crime. I'll see you at the same time, same place next week for our final installment of this little podcast of ours. Thanks, Brian. Thanks, Vic. Thanks, Vic.